The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us for another installment. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com. Also on Twitter, at Dan Prof Show and at Dan Proft. So uh, Tuesday night's results in New Hampshire, up arrows for Bolshevik Bernie and Mannequin Pete and Amy Kay, down arrows, big down arrows, in bold for Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, in his declaration of victory, it's more than just defeating Trump for Bernie, don't you know? Now, our campaign... It's not just about beating Trump. It is about transforming this country. Yeah, and uh, that's where Pete is trying to draw a bit of a contrast, even if it's not one substantively. Here in a state that goes by the motto, live free or die, you made up your own minds. Vulnerable Americans do not have the luxury of pursuing ideological purity over an inclusive victory. And it seems to me, in part, what you have with uh, Pete's very strong and close second-place finish, you have Democrat primary and caucus goers saying, uh, we're good with socialism. We're good with the government takeover of health care and some of the other big government gambits that there's general agreement on among all the candidates. We just uh, don't know if the Bolshevik is the right messenger, the right packaging. I think maybe the Trojan mayor is the better play, sort of an Obama 2.0. It worked in 2008. Why couldn't it work in 2020? Because they know it's not working. What's not working is Joe Biden, who uh, didn't stick around in New Hampshire. He had his uh, New Hampshire election night in South Carolina and used it as an occasion to talk about Nevada. I just spoke to our folks up in uh, in, uh, uh, New Hampshire. And uh, they did a good job. But I want to tell you, the people of Nevada are watching. And uh, I want to make it clear, we praise their diversity as a state. And I'm going to be out there seeing them very soon. Tonight, though, I, we just heard from the first two of 50 states. Two of them. Not all the nation. Not half the nation. Not a quarter of the nation. Right. Not 10%. Yeah, 20, two. Right. One in two. 25. Yeah, 2%. All right, right come from. That's the opening bell. Not the closing bell. Two of the 50 states. And uh, the fight to end Donald Trump's presidency is just beginning. Just beginning. Just beginning. Uh, Yeah, right. I got it. We had one in 25. We heard of only 4%. Yeah, okay, got it. Uh, The problem is, uh, as we talked about briefly yesterday, it doesn't look at present like that firewall in South Carolina for Biden is holding. So he's going to have to do something to reverse his fortunes in Nevada, which is first, February 22nd, and then South Carolina which is a week later on the 29th. So Joe Biden just put him on himself on a two-week clock. There were people who scoffed when I suggested, despite my desire for Joe Biden to be the Democrat POTUS nominee, didn't think he would be and didn't think he would last a Super Tuesday. Uh, right now, his uh, ability to last a Super Tuesday, I think, is an even-money proposition at best. And then there was Amy Kay with a strong finish, Amy Klobuchar, fresh off of her Manchester Union leader endorsement or New York Times co-endorsement and, um, you know, the lack of anything new being presented to New Hampshire voters. Hello, America. 
I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I will beat Donald Trump. Yeah, okay. And even uh, Elizabeth Warren took time out to recognize Klobuchar's uh, surge into third place. And I also want to congratulate my friend and colleague, Amy Klobuchar, for showing just how wrong the pundits can be when they count a woman out. Mm, yeah, okay. Yeah, well done, uh, Chief Warren. The pundits weren't wrong to count you out, though, right? Boy, a distant fourth-place finish for Elizabeth Warren in a neighboring state. Uh, her campaign also uh, flailing at this point. She and Joe Biden really are going to need to do something substantial in the next two states to reverse their fortunes and have any momentum going into Super Tuesday if they're going to not have to uh, yang themselves out after that caucus and that primary coming up. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Moffitt, who is a former New Hampshire state representative, retired professor and Marine Corps officer, and a contributor to the Concord Monitor. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Great to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. And uh, so, um, you know, how, as you were talking to New Hampshire voters and watching this play out, a state that you know very well, that you served uh, in many capacities, uh, was there was there general happiness with the field? Was there any talk about, gosh, I wish Michael Bloomberg was on the ballot or or do you sense that Democrats are pretty content with the field? They're just having a difficult time uh, making a decision between their top two or three choices. Well, Dan, I think some Democrats are happy with the field and they're certainly happy with their candidates. The Bernie, the Bernie folks are very happy with Bernie and Mayor Pete's folks happy with him. Generally speaking, though, I think that, uh, as you may have seen, many voters were undecided going up until walking into the voting booth. I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the options because, uh, you know, Bernie's not viable. Mayor Pete, I don't think, a 37-year-old guy with no uh, Washington experience. So I think the Democrats, uh, a lot of them, are are very worried. And with respect to Bernie comparing his performance on Tuesday night to his performance four years ago, uh, a lot of pundits suggesting, well, it shows you that uh, four years ago there was a lot of anti-Hillary support that accrued to Bernie. And when you strip that away in a multi-candidate field, he has his loyalists for sure. That's uh, a quarter of the electorate. Uh, But that means he's got a high floor and a low ceiling and – therefore doesn't have the ability to go the distance. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He's got a very solid, steady 25 to 28 percent. Doesn't go up, doesn't go down. It's very steady. And uh, so if that's 25 percent of the Democrats, you figure that's about uh, 12 percent of the total electorate. And that's that's not a pathway to uh, Democratic victory. Although there were arguments being made, including uh, by an op-ed writer for USA Today, that moderate Democrats have a duty to consider Bernie because he has a clear path to beating Trump, that uh, his uh, uh, appeal, populist appeal, combined with loyal base, uh, the energy he would bring, uh, presents a uh, legitimate challenge and a legitimate opportunity to beat Trump. Is that a sense that you got from moderate Democrats who were not Bernie voters on Tuesday? Yeah, I think a lot of them are, are worried. Uh, there are moderate Democrats. Now, there were no moderate candidates. They're all liberal or very liberal. But there are some reasonably moderate Democrats and certainly independents who uh, are troubled by Trump and would like an option. And and uh, it's not it's not Bernie Sanders in the long term. Now, I think uh, four years ago, I don't think Bernie ever got the intense scrutiny um, from the media or 
you know, for his positions, what, what is his positions really? I mean, sometimes it gets mentioned now, if he were the nominee, then there would be some, finally, some uh, intense scrutiny of, of what he wants to do. And that's once that happens, if it gets to that point, that's going to just scare a lot of people. Uh, McGo- you know, George McGovern uh, on steroids, so to speak, if, if you're tracking that. Analogy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, we know how that worked out for McGovern. He won all of one state. Uh, but he, but, here, but here's the thing with, with Bernie, too. Just picking up on that uh, sort of signature statement he made again on Tuesday night. I'm not just here to beat Donald Trump. I'm here to transform the country. Those swing voters in New Hampshire in a state that is uh, very much a swing state. Are they looking for someone to bring revolution to D.C.? Are they looking for America to be transformed? Or do they just have a generally have a problem sometimes with the way President Trump communicates uh, and are looking for just something that uh, they feel is more mature in the White House, but not not upending everything that uh, uh, not upending the way America operates? Yeah, I think you just described it well. I don't think that there's a great hunger for transformation like there might have been in somewhat 1932. Uh, the economy is is very, very solid. We're generally at peace. Uh, you know, investments are doing well. Um, we're prosperous. Uh, New Hampshire, we don't have our unemployment rate is so low. We just have so many jobs that we can't fill. In fact, uh, Andrew Yang was saying, I can bring 10,000 jobs to New Hampshire and and uh, we don't have 10,000 people to fill those jobs, really. So <laughs> So the transformation part, I think, uh, you know, he's a true believer. God bless him. And uh, but that is scary to most of us. And if 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 he does remain the front runner, which he he is at this time, uh, once he gets some real scrutiny, even the young kids in college are eventually going to figure out, uh, whoa, you know, what's what's going to happen if he's the president? He is Michael Moffat, former New Hampshire state representative, retired professor, and Marine Corps officer and contributor to the Concord Monitor. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show in 1992. Francis Fukuyama, academic, published a uh, book that made quite a splash, The End of History and the Last Man in which he argued that after the wall had fallen and the Soviet empire was no more, the Cold War was over, that the worldwide spread of liberal, small-L democracies, free market capitalism of the West, was the end point of humanity's sort of socio-cultural evolution, and that was going to be the final form of human government. Well, the end of history didn't last so long, as uh, it usually doesn't with those predicting it, And uh, it was just three years later that he sort of clarified and uh, extended his uh, position that he had taken just three years earlier, modifying it to acknowledge that culture cannot be clearly separated from economics and uh, so on and so forth. So it wasn't the end of history, clearly. 
And now, 28 years later, we have another political psychologist, uh, political scientist slash psychologist from UC Irvine, Sean Rosenberg, who is uh, predicting the end of democracy. Mm-hmm. And we're to blame, as in we the people. We can't handle democracy anymore. Small d democracy, our former government, representative republic, but uh, it's used synonymously, even though, of course, we don't have a direct democracy. His prediction in Fukuyama fashion, in well-established democracies like the United States, democratic governance, small d, will continue its inexorable decline and will eventually fail. What will take its place? Right-wing populism, according to Rosenberg. After uh, three decades, they uh, tackle this in the piece in a Politico about uh, Rosenberg's paper at this recent conference and his argument. So after uh, some had heralded the end of history just three decades ago, is it possible that democracy is nearing its end? Again, Rosenberg's theory, over the next few decades, the number of large Western-style democracies around the globe will continue to shrink. Those that remain will become shells of themselves. Right-wing populist governments that offer voters simple answers to complicated questions will take its place. Why is this happening? Because elites have lost their legitimacy in the public's mind, and uh, right-wing populist politicians are taking advantage of that. The elites doing nothing, the elites in charge of these institutions, doing nothing to stem the demunization of their standing. Well, this is a characterization of the argument, but this piece by Alexandra Glorioso is certainly cheerleading it. Democracy is hard work, requires a lot from those who participate, and it requires people to respect those with different views than theirs from theirs and people who don't look like them and as citizens to be able to sift through large amounts of information and process the good from the bad, the true from the false. It requires thoughtfulness, discipline, and logic. Unfortunately, Evolution did not favor the exercises, the exercise of these qualities in the context of a modern mass democracy. They argue. They present it as unchallengeable fact, but it certainly is not. Rosenberg makes the case that human beings don't think straight. <laughs> but he does, of course. And elites who are similarly inclined, they're the straight thinkers. They're the common sense realists, aren't they? Biases of various kinds skew our brains at the most fundamental level. Uh, Racism is easily triggered. We discount evidence when it doesn't square up with our goals. Confirmation bias, you know, all the logical fallacies are addressed. So that means that because we're susceptible to logical fallacies, we can't uh, participate in self-governance. Our brains are proving fatal to modern democracy. Humans just aren't built for it, says Rosenberg. Uh, The uh, elites are losing control of the institutions that have traditionally saved people from their most undemocratic impulses. When people are left to make political decisions on their own, they drift towards simple solutions, right-wing populist worldwide offer, a deadly mix of xenophobia, racism, and authoritarianism. That's what's happening. Hmm. Well, let's see. Let's uh, perhaps uh, think about the countries that are most in crisis, the socialist destruction of Venezuela comes to mind. The inability of the Chinese communists to properly address a pandemic, not to mention be honest with the world about the extent of that pandemic from the beginning. The concentration camps Chinese communists have opened to uh, murder and do other unholy things to uh, Uyghur Muslim minorities in China. Right-wing populism there? 
this is sort of an extension of the premise that uh, Trump is violating constitutional norms, constitutional order. And so, you know, America will uh, trend towards authoritarianism because of the cult of Trump. What was happening in America before Trump and where was it happening? Things that would be uh, described normally as an anathema to a free society. You know, like not as the uh, as, as Professor Rosenberg references and the author points out racism, xenophobia, uh, not being respectful of people who disagree with you, look differently than you, think differently than you. Where was that most problematic pre-Trump and under Trump? Well, I guess I'll borrow a line from Andrew Sullivan from New York Magazine. No man of the right. We all live on one big college campus now. Those elites in charge of these cultural institutions that supposedly saved us from uh, our our, uh, impulses towards undemocratic values and decision making. Well, I'm sorry, they're, they're the ones who were allowing undemocratic culture to blossom within the institutions they control, right? College campuses, K through 12 school systems, the entertainment and arts community. I mean, I, but this, this, this theory has a huge blind spot in addition to being just woefully elitist in its disposition. The cognoscente save us from ourselves, but because the cognoscent people are not genuflecting before the cognoscente like they used to, democracy is going to end because we're not ceding control of our lives to uh, Professor Rosenberg and his friends. Uh-huh. I don't think so. I think that people generally want to get along in this country. I think people generally want to see both themselves and others treated fairly because they know if they tolerate other people being treated unfairly, then that could boomerang on them. I don't like populism because you never know what form it's going to take. I mean, certainly sort of the uh, account, the, the, the holding those in charge of these civic institutions accountable for what they've produced and what they've become is absolutely legitimate. You don't have to be a populist to do that. You can still come to the table moored in an understanding of small L liberalism, peaceful pluralism, representative republicanism. I find this uh, fatalistic theory offered by Rosenberg uh, as um, fatalistic to a fault as Fukuyama's end of history was optimistic to a fault 30 years ago. This is Dan Proctor. show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, my hometown of Chicago making international news again yesterday with a uh, special counsel in the Jussie Smollett, or is it Juicy Smollett, the French actor, you know, uh, that case filing a six counts of disorderly conduct against Smollett for, of course, the now internationally known race crime hoax that he perpetrated on uh, the people of Chicago and really became an international story. So attempted to perpetrate on the world uh, an indictment return on those six counts of disorderly conduct, which are you know, probably going to result upon conviction, assuming conviction, shouldn't assume that in Cook County, in uh, more fines, more community service, but an important reckoning to establish uh, Smollett's guilt as he protests his innocence and still has the likes of No Justice, No Peace, Maxine Waters, and uh, his uh, co-star in Empire, Terrence Howard, backing his ridiculous story. How ridiculous was his story? Well, Dave Chappelle parroting it in his Netflix stand-up special last fall wasn't actually much of a parody. It's actually like almost reading the police report. Can you imagine if you was a police veteran taking this kid's police report? Okay, Mr. Smollier, please tell me what happened. All right. 2 a.m. We left the house at 2 a.m. It was minus 16 degrees. All right. You were walking. You were walking. All right. And, and where were you going? Subway. Sandwiches? That's when the men approached you? Did you see them? Do you have any? Okay, what do they have on? MAGA hats! MAGA hats on in Chicago? Excuse me one second, Mr. Smollier. Frank, come here for a second. Find out where Kanye West was last night. Good line. Uh, Of course, you'll recall it was uh, two of his friends, two Nigerian-Americans who uh, were hired to, uh, allegedly, allegedly hired to stage this ridiculous hate crime assault. And of course, I, I live in this neighborhood, this alleged MAGA country neighborhood in Chicago called Streeterville. And uh, no, not not MAGA country. But, but here's the thing. We have our, our primary next month in March in Chicago and Illinois. And Kim Fox is facing three challengers. Kim Fox is the prosecutor in the case. She's the Michelle Obama friend. And she is the one who kicked the case, thus the need for a special counsel to come in and investigate the basis for essentially allowing Smollett to walk away scot-free after wasting the police's time here, wasting taxpayers' money here, and attempting to perpetrate a fraud. Well, why would she do that? And is there going to be an electoral reckoning? So on the first matter, just a little bit of local knowledge for you here, because this is about political reckonings for bad actors in public office, and this has universal application, certainly not limited to Chicago. She's not going to. She will win re-election. She will be renominated in part because she faces three opponents rather than one. But even if she faced one, I sub- submit that she would get a majority of the vote. She'd be renominated. Cook County is a four to one Democrat to Republican County. She'll win re-election in, in November because they're fine with the cover story. And, you know, they're fine with Kim Fox trying to characterize this. It's just, you know, just a one off mistake. I think the question about how the case was disposed of is the question that people have. We have an obligation to be transparent in everything that we do. And we dropped the ball in our transparency on the way that we handled this case. So they dropped the ball in transparency. Mia culpa, she's run commercials saying, Mia culpa on the Smollett case. You know, I didn't live up to the high standard I set for myself. One of those 
plays to, you know, admit a mistake, pretend that you're accountable, and then essentially say that this was an anomaly, nothing to otherwise believe that this is, you know, who I am. I'm better than I was in the Smollett case. And she's got a lot of political support, including from the black community in Chicago, who uh, want to find the timing of the announcement of this indictment against Smollett 35 days before an election very suspicious. We will not allow a special prosecutor to bring down a sister... It's strange, it's peculiar, and it's interesting that it's coming out at this particular moment. And if you think that the uh, D.C. press corps are uh, left, the Chicago press corps, the Chicago Sun-Times, one of the papers of record in town, they endorsed Kim Fox for re-election. Of course they did. They also endorsed Rob Blagojevich for re-election back in 2008 when he was under federal investigation. You know, these one-offs, oh, sure, some mistakes have been made, but we shouldn't uh, let that overshadow all of the accomplishments. That's what the Sun-Times wrote about Kim Fox. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about those accomplishments, quote-unquote, and see if there may be other big mistakes that are particularly telling, because Kim Fox is one of these George Soros-funded state's attorneys. More on this topic when we come back on the Dan Prof Show. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking about uh, Juicy Smollett and uh, Kim Fox and justice in Chicago. Again, Kim Fox is a prosecutor who received $400,000 from George Soros through his various instruments when she ran for election four years ago. She's up for re-election, well, first with the March primary a month from now and then, of course, in November. And she's going to win re-election, as I said. There is no reckoning. There is no reckoning for bad actors in public office in Illinois, much like other irreparably damaged blue states, California, New York, New Jersey come to mind. Right. To paraphrase uh, Mr. Burns, competence, integrity, shame. These are the demons you must slay in order to be successful in Illinois politics. And Kim Fox has slayed them. So she'll be reelected. The uh, characterization here, and this is sort of politics 101 damage control, made a mistake. Didn't handle that as good as I could have. The Jesse Smollett case owned it. And uh, that shouldn't overshadow my accomplishments. That's exactly what the Sun-Times, Chicago Sun-Times, wrote in endorsing Kim Fox for re-election, remarkably. And as John Cass and the other newspaper of record in town, the Chicago Tribune writes, I get it. You know, this all this conspiracy theorizing about the timing of these charges against Jesse Smollett, the, the suggestion that it's like the Jim Comey timing of uh, reopening the Hillary Clinton case right before the 2016 election. John Cass responds to that conspiracy theorizing, saying, I get it, Kim. Trump made you talk to Tina Chen. That's Michelle Obama's chief of staff. Trump made you drop all the charges against Smollett. It's all orange man bad. Obviously, Fox and friends are counting on the idiocy of Cook County to save her. Well, it's been reliable. You can understand why they would count on the idiocracy, idiocracy of Cook County to save her. It's been reliable. The idiocracy has saved a lot of terrible politicians in Chicago, including some that have been leveled up to the national level. You 
maybe thinking of particular names. And by the way, Kim Fox's story has changed throughout this saga of her recusal from the Smollett case. First, her non-recusal recusal. First, she recused herself saying, well, I had these ex parte conversations with friends that are friends of the Smollett family, like Tina Chen, Michelle Obama's chief of staff. We never have quite gotten the full story, even with more than two documents released that included Kim Fox texts and phone calls. There's a lot of that redacted. Never have gotten quite the full story. Did she or did she not talk directly to Michelle Obama on this matter? Never really gotten a full accounting of that. But that was her excuse to recuse herself. But it was a fake recusal because she should have recused her whole office and brought in a special prosecutor. She didn't do that. She just recused herself. And then there was the suggestion that she was still pulling the strings while she was, quote unquote, recused. Then she changed her story, did Kim Fox, last summer and said, no, no, I recused myself because there were rumors circulating that I was related to Jesse Smollett. And I didn't want to allow for even the appearance of impropriety. So that's why I recused myself. Yeah, the Justice Smollett case is a real catastrophe, and anybody with any common sense knew it was a hoax from Jump Street, including the Chicago police officers who were investigating. I know because I talked to them in real time, some friends on the force. Every single person knew. Of course, the Chicago press corps and the political hacks on the left and those that still won't cop to it to this day, Smollett and friends, you know, they're always the last to know these things, aren't they? Mm -hmm. But what else is going on in Cook County that's instructive for you in other states and big cities with George Soros backed state's attorneys, George Soros financed state's attorneys uh, who are pursuing the same approach to violent crime that you've seen? uh, Well, in New York City under de Blasio, the Sandinista mayor of New York City and Governor Cuomo, because it's a state law that bail reform, quote unquote. That was turning out people who were accused of hate crimes against Jewish people over the holidays. That's a rash of hate crimes against Jews in New York City. De Blasio admitting the other day that, yeah, it's likely that bail reform law of uh, allowing people to walk unless they're accused of a violent crime. And then you even get into the definition of violent crime. How violent does the assault have to be to be considered violent? Turning them out is probably the reason we've seen a spike in crime. That's de Blasio conceding that point. Well, let me give you an example of what's happening under Kim Fox here as it's happening under the Soros-financed state's attorneys and district attorneys in other states. And more are coming because this is an initiative of Soros, and he's got a lot of money. Last summer, after a weekend in June where 52 people were shot and 10 were killed in Chicago— The uh, Chicago Police Department released information that 11 of the 19 individuals arrested on gun charges over that weekend, 11 of the 19. Now, of course, that's a fraction of those who had fired weapons illegally. 11 of the 19 are already out on the street. Seven of the individuals were previously convicted of felons and six had prior gun offenses in their backgrounds. 11 of the 19 were turned right back on the street. There are gun charges. And you've got uh, Kim Fox, uh, like the Democrat politicians, like the Mike Bloomberg's of the world and the Joe Biden's of the world, talking about banning sport rifles and taking on the NRA. You need to take on the state's attorneys in these big cities. Eleven of the 19 that weekend arrested on gun charges, released seven previously convicted felons, six prior gun offenses. Here's another example. A year ago, September, a Chicago police SUV pulled up next to Antoine Smith. An officer in the squad looked into Smith's car. He saw Smith looking back at him, pulling his T-shirt down to cover a gun in his waistband. Smith was on parole at the time after being released early from prison, early from prison for his second gun felony. The police saw Smith throw the gun from the car and they gave chase. They uh, also found he was 
carrying eight grams of crack cocaine. Prosecutors charged Smith with class X felony, armed habitual criminal, class X armed violence with a weapon, felony manufacture delivery of cocaine, felony repeated unlawful use of a weapon by a felon, felony aggravated fling and felony and traffic violations. On uh, March of last year, the state dropped the armed habitual criminal charge. Uh, all those felonies he was charged with. A three-time loser after being released early from prison for his second gun felony. What happened to him in March? Six months later? Released by posting a $6,000 deposit bond. 10% of the bail amount set. $60,000 bail, 6000 bucks gets him out of jail. Two months later, while free on bail, he murdered a 15-year-old girl named Jalen Elsie in a drive-by shooting. That's one of those other mistakes that were made under the Kim Fox regime. The mistakes that are being made, quote-unquote, the mistakes making themselves in big cities with prosecutors and judges and sometimes police chiefs, but rarely, mostly prosecutors and judges and big city leftist politicians who don't want to enforce the laws. All the talk about gun crime and cracking down on gun crime and keeping the streets safe. And incident after incident, weekend after weekend, you have what I was just describing in Chicago last year. So the Smollett case is the one that makes international news because he's a celebrity and because the case is so silly, it was worthy of, you know, five minutes of Dave Chappelle's comedy special. And it was a great five minutes, I add. But it's this other thing that's going on in New York City, in Philadelphia, in San Francisco, in Chicago, anywhere George Soros' money rears its lethal head that people should be paying attention to. This is Dan Proff. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And I'm, I'm torn about this next story because um, I so enjoy AOC's musings. And I'd hate to see her lose her platform in Congress as the uh, one of the intellectual leaders of the uh, 21st century left. And by extension, what passes for the Democrat Socialist Party. But uh, there is news on her race. It's uh, MCC versus AOC. Michelle Caruso Cabrera, former CNBC cable TV host, is... Uh, going to take on AOC in the Democrat primary, uh, saying that uh, she's got a similar story and uh, a three-letter acronym to uh, represent her hyphenated name. Uh, She once worked as a waitress as compared to AOC employed as a bartender slash waitress. Okay, so uh, check marks there. She also uh, makes the point that she is the daughter and granddaughter of working-class Italian and Cuban immigrants, saying, I'm so lucky to have had such a wonderful career, and I want everybody to have the opportunity I've had as she commits to fighting for the people of Queens and the Bronx. All right, so uh, that's a primary campaign. But you can understand, I mean, uh, why I would be of two minds on this. Yes, sure, you'd like to see somebody less embarrassing, I suppose, in uh, that seat as a member of Congress. But by the same token... You're going to miss out on uh, her uh, Jeremiah ads like the one we played yesterday against Rush Limbaugh receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom, explaining to us that that was a sacred honor 
and the that she was mainly offended apparently that there wasn't a formal ceremony that had happened in the gallery at the State of the Union address, but it was but still he's a virulent racist, even though she doesn't know how to pronounce the word virulent and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, we also had this over the weekend hadn't gotten to yet, but I again, anything she says, I want to make sure it gets proper amplification. And this is her joined with Bo Riley Roberts, her boyfriend. They took the Instagram, of course to uh, provide a little bit of a tutorial on racism in America. And remember, uh, Riley's a white dude. So, Riley, what has been helpful to you in combating racism? Uh, I think it's helpful and important to talk to other white people about racism. Hmm. And I think a lot of people, they don't want to be racist. They don't think that they're racist. But they also don't know some of the things that they believe or say are and can be racist and I think one of the like effective ways is just to talk and kind of help teach them about why some of the things they believe or say or think are wrong Mm -hmm. not necessarily racist but that they're wrong and that'll sort of like chip away and you know contribute to some development in this area but not necessarily take somebody from like being a racist and mm-hmm. not being a racist in one conversation. And it's just always mm-hmm. being open to learning about racist things that we may have said or done without judgment and defensiveness. Deep thoughts with AOC and Riley. You can see how the two got together. I do note that uh, Riley sports a beard. Sounds like he may also serve as one. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com, on Twitter at danprofshow, and at danproft. And uh, the uh, headline belies the analysis a little bit, but the headline, the nuclear family was a mistake. We spent so much time talking about family as the uh, unit of analysis in terms of uh, social stability and social cohesion. What if we have the paradigm wrong for the 21st century? is essentially the question that David Brooks explores. Uh, He starts by, you know, depicting like the prototypical 1950s extended family as portrayed in Barry Levinson's film Avalon, which was based on his own childhood. Five brothers came to America from Eastern Europe around the time of World War One, built a wallpaper business. For a while, they did everything together like the old country. But as the movie goes along, the extended family splits apart. Some members move to the suburbs for more privacy and space. One leaves for a job in a different state. The big blow up comes over something that seems trivial, but isn't. The eldest of brothers arrives late to a Thanksgiving dinner to find the family has begun the meal without him and so on and so forth. But those conventions of the extended family that's, you know, one generation into the American experience. Here's his summary of what happened in this past century. The truest thing to say is we've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected and extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families 
married couple and their children, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger, interconnected, extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and the poor. It's a lot to take in, but, you know, you use your own experience as a guide. The extended family to the nuclear family to the family situation today, only a minority of American households are in traditional two-parent nuclear families, and only one-third of American individuals live in this kind of family. That's today. He quotes from uh, the book The Lost City. Uh, Alan Ehrenholt describes life in that halcyon period of the nuclear family in Chicago's suburbs. To be a young homeowner in a suburb like Elmhurst in the 1950s was to participate in a communal enterprise that only the most determined loner could escape. Barbecues, coffee clatches, volleyball games, babysitting co-ops, and constant bartering, bartering of household goods, child rearing by the nearest parents who happened to be around, neighbors wandering through the door at any hour without knocking. All these were devices by which young adults had been set down in a wilderness of tract homes made a community. It was a life lived in public. Uh, Eli Finkel, a psychologist and marriage scholar from Northwestern, argues that since the 1960s, the dominant family culture has been the self-expressive marriage. He wrote, uh, Americans now look to marriage increasingly for self-discovery, self-esteem, and personal growth. Marriage, according to a couple of other sociologists, but along the same lines of argumentation, marriage is no longer primarily about childbearing and child rearing. Now marriage is primarily about adult fulfillment. That cultural shift has been very good for some adults, but it's not so good for families generally. Fewer relatives are around in times of stress to help a couple work through them. If you marry for love, staying together made less sense when the love died. This attenuation of marital ties may have begun during the late 1800s, but the number of divorces, I should say, increased about 15-fold from 1870-1820, then climbed more or less continuously for several decades until the nuclear family era. There was a period of stability there, sort of that generation that Brooks identifies as 1950 to 1965. Americans today have less family than ever before. Over the last 40 years, the share of households consisting of married couples with kids has been cut in half. In 1960, just 13% of all households were single-person households. In 2018, it more than doubled to 28%. Those are big numbers. Those are big shifts in a short period of time. The extended family. The extended family had two great strengths. First is resilience, right? It acts as a supporting web. Your spouse and children come first, but they're also cousins, in-laws, grandparents, complex web of relationships. You know, if one relationship ruptures, others fill the void. The second strength of extended families is their socializing force. Multiple adults teach children right from wrong, how to behave towards others, how to be kind, and so forth. Also, you have, over the past two generations, people spending less and less time in marriage, marrying later, if at all, divorcing more. Families have also gotten a lot smaller. Over the past two generations, families have grown more unequal. America now has entirely, two entirely different family regimes. Among the highly educated, family patterns are almost as stable as they were in the 1950s. Right? This is the coming apart Charles Murray argument. The affluent don't preach what they practice. They're practicing sort of the Victorian mores of the 50s, and they're preaching cultural Marxism. But among the less fortunate, family life is often utter chaos. There's a reason for that divide. Affluent people have the resources to effectively buy extended family in order to shore themselves up. Think of all the child-rearing labor affluent parents now buy that used to be done by extended kin. Babysitting, professional child care, tutoring, coaching, therapy, after-school programs. For that matter, think of how affluent the affluent can hire therapists and life coaches for themselves. These expensive tools and services not only support children's development and help prepare them to compete in the meritocracy, by reducing stress and time commitments for parents, they preserve the amity of marriage. 
they're telescoping through resources what used to be provided by extended family, that web. But uh, middle and lower income families don't have those same resources, yet they're still living in the same culture. And thus the divide, Brooks argues. Dennis in Milwaukee. Uh, just two points. One is that we saw the attack on traditional values at the same time as some of these other, you know, paradigms began to shift in the late 50s and 60s. And that, that rebellion against institutions, including the traditional family, you know, takes its roots back then. But I would suggest that the, the other thing that's accelerated these problems is the uh, loss of focus on what was the fundamental social network, which was the family. And that's been extended to uh, more global, more modern social networks. And the whole problem has been accelerated, if not exacerbated, by the, by the Internet. And, and this idea that, that particularly the Z Geners and the millennials are reaching out and extending their own families through social networks. So instead of coming and knocking at your door in your neighborhood, they're knocking at your door on your cell phone and your tablet. And that's my point. Today. Mm, yeah, OK. All right. Thanks for the call, Dennis. Brooks kind of gets to that point in a different way. He talks about redefining kinship. Throughout most of human history, kinship was something you could create if if you didn't have it by blood. For vast stretches of human history, people lived in extended families consisting of not just people they were related to, but people they chose to cooperate with. Paul in Plainfield. Hey, so I have two points. One, the breakdown of family structure definitely correlates to the breakdown in religion and Christianity in the U.S., which I find interesting. And then the second point is, is I live uh, where I live, and I have a next-door neighbor that I've lived next to for six years, and I don't even know their names. I know they have kids. I see them, but I've knocked on the door and said, hi, how you doing? And they're like, yeah, hi, see ya. And, <laughs> you know, they don't talk to us at all. And it's a sad state of being. Thanks for the call, Paul. Appreciate it. Uh, Maurice in Berwyn. Uh, I was saying the fact, I mean, I'm African-American. I mean, African-American rates for marriage are, I mean, mainly the garbage, pretty much. My parents have been married for 65 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, two quick points is, one, that, you know, I find that most people I find, my Caucasian friends live in the suburb, uh, who are divorced, love it. They love the freedom. Uh, people don't love obligation. And, I, I mean, people love the freedom of being divorced. And two is, if people were really serious about upholding the things of marriage, make it hard for people to get divorced. You know, I hear, oh, my God, the well, right. and yeah. Why is it so easy to get divorced, man? Well, right. So, I mean, so should we should go back to the pre-no-fault divorce era. Maybe. I mean, if you want if you want to make marriage so, so sanctified, it should be harder than I mean, there are benefits to being married. I think one of the reasons why I'm able to be successful as African-Americans from the West Side is because my parents were together. Yeah. I'm not a moralist, but having two married parents who were non-drug addicted made me successful. So this one can't go to end. Thanks for the call, Maurice. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point that he raises. Uh, what what uh, David Brooks turns to is this uh, idea of a uh, political scientist at the University of Dallas, Daniel Burns. He's It's not an idea so much as a description. He's not necessarily endorsing it. He's describing it. What we have today are forged families, meaning uh, millennials moving back into the house because they can't afford to uh, live on their own at this point. You know, like. They're on their parents' health insurance until 26, that sort of thing. The uh, Julia avatar from the Obama campaign. Also, uh, seniors, same deal. The expense of assisted living facilities, uh, so seniors moving back into the homes with their kids. Tragedy and suffering have pushed people together in a way that goes deeper than just a convenient living arrangement. Over the past several decades, the decline of the nuclear family has created an epidemic of trauma. Millions have been set adrift because what should have been the most loving and secure relationships in their life broke. 
slowly but with increasing frequency, these drifting individuals are coming together to create forged families. These forged families have a feeling of determined commitment. The members of your chosen family are the people who show up for you no matter what. Family isn't always blood. It's the people in your life who want you in theirs, the ones who accept you for who you are. That's sort of, I guess, the working definition of the forged family. But it still leaves people a bit adrift because there are these blood ties, familial bonds, whether from your blood relatives or the family that you had when you were married that you no longer have in divorce. It's interesting. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, white male rage was supposed to be all courant in Hollywood, at least with respect to nominations. It didn't turn out that way so much in terms of the actual victors in the uh, Oscar lottery there. I mean, with the exception of Joaquin Phoenix, and he really downplayed the rage by spending most of his time talking about how we're stealing uh, cow's milk from their calves. Uh, and, you know, it turns out uh, that uh, white men didn't do didn't fare too well the, the academy award so i guess that's progress at least according to hollywood and the identitarians what are we getting from hollywood and how impactful is it we know it's a powerful medium we know storytelling is a powerful communication tool persuasive communication tool so should we um, examine a little bit about what stories are emanating from hollywood and the kind of cultural impact they're having denise McAllister did that recently in an interview at um the blog Hollywood and Toto, which was quite good. She is a journalist and social commentator, also the co-author of Spygate, the attempted sabotage of Donald J. Trump. Denise, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. So in uh, with respect to the whole white male rage argument in the run-up to the Oscars, uh, you addressed that in this interview I referenced. And uh, you know, talk more about how men are portrayed in, in film more generally to try to deal and provide you know instruction to the larger world about uh, masculine toxicity. Yeah, well, I just finished um, writing a book. It's out today. It's called What Men Want to Say to Women But Can't. And it's based on this whole idea that men have really been targeted in our society and masculinity has been targeted. And you do see this in film. And, you know, art, it both uh, directs culture and reflects it. Uh, so uh, they're picking up cues from the culture of reinforcing them. And this whole idea that uh, men, particularly white men, uh, have had their place in the sun for too long in our society. And that if they're truly going to be egalitarian, then they need to give up their places for the marginalized and for various identity groups. So we've moved from a society that's um, based on merit and based on performance, and, and we've moved to the, the uh, your sex, the color of your skin instead of the content of your character, uh, because they see that history has been unfair, and, and men need to actually voluntarily 
step aside. And if you don't, you're guilted into it. Yeah, but what about male pandering, though? And uh, I, you see this all the time from uh, uh, those uh, artists in our culture. You know, they buy the uh, path that comes out of Hollywood, That you know, the sort of a Jim Belushi character, and according to Jim, you know, they're the hapless husband who's always getting in the way, and he's just such a dope, and he can't stand upright without his wife telling him what to do and where to stand and how to dress. You know, it's, it's so funny to me in Hollywood if, if you— White men in particular, but not necessarily limited to white men in general, they're either dopes or at the same time they're entrenched power interests. So which is it? There are these entrenched power interests or they're adults that can't, uh, you know, uh, accommodate daily tasks and otherwise take care of themselves? <laughs> well, that's where you definitely have the, uh, the art imposing its will onto culture rather than reflecting it, because their belief that culture as it is is that men are too powerful, but what they want to impose on culture in order to change it is that men are worthless, men can't be trusted. You know, this is me, if anyone saw on Netflix, The Lost in Space uh, uh, series. Uh, the man in that, who's supposed to be this really strong male, maybe seal, uh, is, is constantly minimized by his more brilliant, more capable, more emotionally intelligent wife. And you know, so he's, he's diminished. Instead of seeing two strong people working together, I mean, and sometimes you do see that in that series, but it's so overtly over the top, uh, you know, kind of putting the man down and in his place, even about physical things. One thing in Hollywood that really drives me crazy are all the superhero women and all the women who can kick butt out there and, and that has no relevance to reality uh, because women are not as strong as men. And, you know, this we, we actually create kind of a, a fantasy that can put women in danger because they think they can do these things and they are so physically independent, but they're not. We really do need men. We need men to protect us. We need men to be strong because we simply aren't. And that's another thing that men can't say to women is like, no, you're not as strong as we are. You do need us denigrating us and let us be the strong men that we want to be and are designed to be. Yeah, it would have been better, though, if he just rooted you on. Come on, you can do it. You can get it to the car. Yeah, give you the little engine that could speech. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I have no surprise. You know, I'm not too proud to be able to ask for help. And, you know, instead of talking about, here I am, woman, here we were, I can do it. Why? Why? Well, I can have the help of a man and then he can get the joy out of helping a woman. No one. Wanted to uh, also uh, to take note of the film Little Women. I haven't seen it yet. I did read the book in high school. And so I was interested in this review in the Wall Street Journal that found that the uh, adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's book expunged God from uh, Little Women. What a shock there with the uh, hostility towards Christianity coming from Hollywood. But it is interesting, and this, of course, is applicable across the gender divide, the hostility towards religion, even in telling a classic tale like Little Women. I think the attack on masculinity in men is not separate from the attack on Christianity and God, uh, because masculinity is one aspect of the image of God and man that he that is in this world. And the, those who hate Christianity, hate God, hate his image in, in man, in women, in humanity. And they also hate the, the authority and the power that comes with that image. And uh, so there's a way of really reducing humanity and attacking humanity by removing men from the picture. I, I often say that we, our liberty will be lost if we lose masculinity. You know, our freedom will be lost. And 
you know, those who hate God hate liberty at the core. They talk about it a lot. They talk about freedom a lot, but they really don't like it, which is like why they're always taking it away. And one of the biggest ways is to remove men from it. So there, there's a correlation and a connection between anti-God and anti-man. How, how much of this uh, do you think is ideological and how much, much of it is just a put on to cover their own barbarism? So, the, you know, the infamous video of Meryl Streep standing and uh, applauding Roman Polanski, all those who flacked for Harvey Weinstein for all those years who now have all the Me Too garb on and are uh, finger wagging uh, all men accused of anything, regardless of how the facts actually turn out. They may turn out one way in the Weinstein case, and, and it looks like they're turning out in a very different way for the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case just to highlight to two examples. You know, how, how much of it do you think is just to put on so that they have license to behave like they really want to? Well, I think their ideology runs up against their practicality. And, you know, they have these ideals of, you know, being so proper and anti-man and egalitarian and, and this equity, equal outcomes and all of that that they espouse and women being strong. And, but yet that's a reality. But it doesn't correspond with what they do in their everyday life. And so they kind of have to, mainly because you have immature men, you have immature women, you have all of these examples that you just gave, where they are pandering for their own self-interest and their materialism and, and their greed and, and their ambition, which are all very real and more than their pride is probably bigger than their ideology. But they don't want anyone to know that because they, they want to feel good about themselves and they want to feel good about their ideology. So that's what they put out front and center, despite the hypocrisy of it all. Mm. She is Denise McAllister. She's a journalist, social commentator, author of Spygate, The Attempted Sabotage of Donald J. Trump. Also, new book, What Men Want to Say to Women But Can't. Boy, there's a million punchlines you could uh, do. Uh, Denise McAllister, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's great. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Dateline on this installment of Campus Beat. DeKalb, Illinois, Northern Illinois University, where both my parents went to college. Becoming the first college in Illinois to eliminate standardized test scores in general admission and merit scholarship decisions. To make the college more accessible to all students. Oh, it sounds laudable, doesn't it? Announcing its policy, uh, test-blind policy, last week. Any high school graduate who applies to Northern Illinois University with a cumulative GPA of 3.0 or higher will be guaranteed admission regardless of their SAT or ACT scores. The uh, president of the university is saying this uh, policy change comes from a deep commitment to making college education both accessible and equitable for a broad and diverse student population. Oh, a footnote. The announcement comes as Northern Illinois University enters the spring 2020 semester after closing out the first semester of its lowest fall enrollment in 50 years. This isn't about uh, all those high-minded uh, payons to diversity and accessibility. This is about uh, a school that's hemorrhaging undergraduate population. 
that's what's actually happening here. So we need to we need to get people in, get people in, regardless of whether regardless of their college preparedness, eliminating test scores because they're not indicative uh, they're, uh, of the kind of student that uh, we could have at the collegiate level. They're not predictive. Right. Well, uh oh, University of California college system. Imagine this just completed and released a 227-page report recommending that the University of California collegiate system keep standardized tests like the ACT and SAT as admissions requirements. And it actually destroys the argument made by NIU and other academics and other administrators who are beating the anti-testing drum. The report concludes that, quote, test scores are currently better predictors of first-year GPA than high school grade point average. Better predictors. Scores are also about as good at predicting total college GPA and the likelihood a student will graduate. The report writes, uh, concludes, while the predictive power of test scores has gone up, the report adds, the predictive power of high school grades has gone down. Why would that be? Well, golly, uh, when you put a marker down, like if you get a 3.0, come out of high school with a 3.0, you get to go to NIU and other schools that are pursuing similar policies. Then you have great inflation. Colleges working with K through 12 systems to make sure they've got uh, the endless stream of uh, subsidized college students entering their doors to keep their, in many respects, phony baloney institutions afloat financially. Great inflation. Predictive power of grades has gone down because of gaming at the K through 12 level, forget varsity blues. What's going on with grades at the K through 12 level? Huh? Talk about phony baloney academic records, not just athletic ones for the rich. The predictive power of test scores has gone up. The faculty uh, task force found that admissions policies play only a s- relatively small role in the underrepresentation of black and Hispanic students in the University of California collegiate system. You know, this is not a bunch of conservative academics at the University of California collegiate uh, college system, you know. The single biggest factor is low is relatively low rates of completion of required high school coursework among minority students. That explains the underrepresentation of black and Hispanic students more so than do test results. Also this, the uh, they find that actually the uh, test scores, 40% of African American students who were guaranteed admission to University of California colleges in 2018 got in based on a formula that weighs test scores. 40% The original intent of the SAT was to identify students who came from outside relatively privileged circles who might have the potential to succeed in university, the report says. The original intent is clearly being realized at UC. So this is not to say that there are not limits to to testing and its predictive power. Of course there are. The report raises the possibility of uh, the UC creating its own admissions tests, which don't measure uh, many admirable traits. But it does expose the folly of those at places like NIU who are eliminating entrance tests or the scores on entrance tests in the name of social justice, papering over their craven play for students and the resources attached to them with uh, the rhetoric of the social justice warrior, diversity and accessibility and inclusiveness and so on and so forth. You're not doing the kids any favor. You're certainly not doing the taxpayers any favor. But you are keeping your inflated salaries and phony baloney jobs intact. And that's the real play. Colleges, like so many K-12 through systems in urban centers, as we talked about with Chris Stewart on the show yesterday, they're to be third-party administrators for the salaries and benefits of the adults in the system, first and foremost. To the extent they impart knowledge 
or advance the intellectual development of kids in so many of these systems and in so many of these colleges, well, that's just a happy, happy secondary effect. But it's not the primary purpose. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. The uh, billionaire entrepreneur investor Peter Thiel writes a book review of uh, Ross Duthat's new book, The Decadent Society, How We Became Victims of Our Own Success. Now, Thiel is a bit of an accomplished author in his own right. If you haven't read his book from about a half a dozen years ago called Zero to One, which was sort of dissertation on startups as well as uh, some of his uh, futurism, his futurist philosophy, it's worth a read. I mean, he is a very well-read individual, provocative thinker. In uh, Zero to One, he uh, presents a bit of an optimistic view on the future of progress in America, new way of thinking about innovation. But he um, starts by asking a lot of questions that leads you to find value in unexpected places. And uh, really, the overriding theme of his book is learning to think for yourself. So I, and I haven't read Dothat's book yet, but I certainly will. It's interesting to, to an atheist like Teal would review the book of a Catholic like Dothat and uh, do so in First Things, which is a conservative Catholic journal, firstthings.com. Teal's review of Dothat's book is almost works as a commentary on culture anyway. I mean, there's a lot of things the two have in common when assessing what the problems are. Uh, decadence, decadence. Teal uh, going through Dothat's argument. Are we making progress? Not so much, Dothet argues. Uh, baby boomers will wince at his title since decadence sounds to them like the complaint of an old curmudgeon. They cannot stand to think of themselves as old, nor can they bear to think of the society they dominate as dysfunctional. But this is a young man's book. Dothet can see our sclerotic institutions clearly because his vision is not distorted by out-of-date memories from a more functional era. Dothet may be just a few years younger than Teal, who I think is... Uh, Early 50s. Uh, Dothet outlines, uh, outlines four aspects of the decadence. Stagnation, technological and economic, one. Sterility, declining birth rates, two. Sclerosis, institutional failure, which we've talked a lot about, three. And repetition or cultural exhaustion, another way to put it. That, those are the four. So let's just take them in turn because I think it provides a lot to think about and it uh, certainly provokes to read Dothet's book and do so in while thinking about uh, Teal's review. Stagnation is the most evident. Look up from your phone and compare our time to 1969. Only Over the last two generations, writes Joe Fettel, the only uh, true radical change has taken place in the devices we use for communication and entertainment so that a single one of the 19th century's great innovation, uh, great inventions, running water, still looms larger in our everyday existence than most of what we think of as technological breakthroughs today. Teal uh, writes, basically, uh, not, not much has changed except uh, the cars are faster and uglier over the last half century. Secondly, sclerosis, disease institutions, the inability of our government to get anything done. Dothat writes, time makes these problems worse as popular programs be become part of an informal social contract that makes them nearly impossible to reform. Think of all the entitlement programs where, where there's unanimity on protecting big government social engineering programs that we know for example, don't provide the kind of ROI you could get in the market if you were saving for your own retirement, Social Security, and uh, provide a impossible rate of return when it comes to what you pay in versus the cost of the health services you get out. And of course, I'm talking about Medicare. 
but nobody wants to touch the entitlement programs, either party. That's the point. Sclerosis. As the administrative state gets barnacled by interest groups that can buy off and bludgeon would-be reformers, and as the proliferation of regulations handcuffs administrators and deprives them of room to respond to changing times. There's sclerotic government. It's too big. It's too unwieldy. It's too expansive. It's too intrusive. Repetition. That's the condition of our culture. Remakes of remakes. Whereas the titles, 50s, the 60s, and 70s, and the 80s all had distinctive bi-decade styles in design, clothing, music, art. From the 90s to now, feels like one big remix. We're stuck in a boomer cultural loop, explains Dothat. From J.J. Abrams remaking George Lucas's Star Wars to Martin Scorsese remaking himself. Yeah. Teal goes on, picking up on the conversation uh, we were having earlier in the hour about the American family, the David Brooks piece in the Atlantic. Now the old family structure has been smashed. Religion is in decline. Patriotism is passe. And the cultural marketplace is fragmented because there is no longer a healthy, dominant culture. Would-be rebels have nothing to resist. So they play act the battles of a previous age. And every aspect of the decadence that Dothet outlines reinforces the other. Legal sclerosis is likely a bigger part of the obstacle to the adoption of flying cars than engineering, for example. Poor transportation makes it more expensive to raise a family and so lowers birth rates. Aging brings risk aversion and arrests creativity. And so Teal goes on to suggest that things are, as I said, much the same they were 50 years ago. If you can get a university president, almost every one of whom is a boomer, writes Teal, to take stagnation seriously, and again, stagnation, what, what hasn't changed in the last half century, you're going to hear two talking points from these university presidents. First, we need to spend more money on education and research. Second, progress is harder now than it used to be because the low-hanging fruit is all gone and we're up against the limits of nature. Dothat rejects these excuses. He maintains that more of the same is not enough, and stagnation is not a fate imposed by the universe. Choosing agency over boomer complacency, though that sets the stakes for the most urgent public debate of the 2020s. How do we get back to the future? How do we get back to the future? This goes back to something that Teal argued in Zero to One, that you have to do something new to go from zero to one. The next Bill Gates will not build an operating system. The next Larry Page or Sergey Brin won't make a search engine. Tomorrow's champions will not win by competing ruthlessly in today's marketplace. They'll escape competition altogether because their business will be unique. And uh, that seems to be sort of a theme running through these areas of decadence, the institutional failure, the cultural exhaustion, the technological and economic mediocrity, uh, even um, the situation with the uh, disintegration of the family structure. Not thinking independently, not creating something unique, maybe in the sense uh, moderation to take forward from the past those things that worked, say, like the nuclear family. It doesn't need to be reinvented while taking the approach that worked to produce real innovation, to produce real cultural enhancements, the approach, not just replicating. It's, it's sort of like, to put it in political terms, it's like when people, when Republican politicians recite the talking points of the Reagan era. The point is not to repeat what Reagan said in the 1980s. The point is to take the approach he took to the pressing, salient issues of the day and explain them and argue for your positions in the modern parlance. The approach can endure. The manifestation of it needs to change through original thinking. So I'm excited to read Dothat's book, and if you ha- and you should be too. And if you haven't read Zero to One, add that to your reading list as well. 
This is Dan Fowler. The more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Whether or not the big government beltway press corps is the enemy of the people, it certainly is the enemy of economic literacy and fact-checking. Beckett Adams over at the Washington Examiner did a nice compilation for us. Just one day in the life of the echo chamber that is the D.C. press corps. Four errors in 10 hours. Material errors. Number one, New York Times' Maggie Haberman tweeting on uh, Monday evening, Republican voter registration in New Hampshire is down roughly 20,000 voters from 2016 to now. It's a reminder that Trump's increased GOP popularity is in part because in some places the GOP registration rolls have shrunk. That's not true. It's actually been debunked several times, as Beckett Adams points out. But nonetheless, it sounds like something you'd want to say if you were trying to find silver linings at present with an eye towards November, how Trump is going to lose. You know, trying to uh, minimize the numbers that he's sporting now and that uh, the American economy is sporting under him. Which brings us to Katie Tour. That's uh, Keith Olbermann's former girlfriend over at MSNBC. She apparently hosts a news show on MSNBC. I only know that because of Beckett Adams' reporting. She um, trying to uh, provide some context to the strong economic numbers touted by President Trump in his administration. Argue that the economy is not necessarily working for the individual who is struggling to get by. The individual who spends up to, her words, 360 months paying off his car loan. Hmm. The 30-year car loan. I'm not familiar with this vehicle. Is anybody else? 360 months paying off a car loan. Boy, uh, next time, uh, Katie, either uh, ask somebody who actually uh, does have to struggle paying a car loan, or if this is your experience, then have somebody go with you so uh, you don't get taken to the cleaners at the dealers, huh? She uh, said during a broadcast from New Hampshire, when I ask people if they're voting for Donald Trump, I hear about their 401ks a lot. But there are those out there who don't have a 401k and there are those out there who this economy is not really working for. They might have a job, but that job doesn't pay their bills. They can't get they can get a car, but it's a loan that will take 30 years. That's what she said. Christina Alisi over at CNN warned viewers to be very wary of this recently surfaced audio of Mayor Bloomberg from the Aspen Institute Congress five years ago where he was talking about stop and frisk policy that we played on my show yesterday, saying there was was not the whole remarks taken out of context. But in point of fact, those were his full remarks. What you heard on this show and what you've been hearing online and elsewhere, those were the full remarks, just false. And then there's um, NBC News' Heidi Shibola sharing a conspiracy theory alleging that the Kremlin is responsible for making the hashtag Bloomberg is racist in response to that stop and frisk commentary on that video from his time at the Aspen Institute audio that surfaced. The hashtag, which is definitely organic, cropped up Tuesday morning following the release of that audio. Shivala later deleted her tweet promoting the conspiracy, which she didn't even bother to double check before sharing with her Twitter followers. That's just four instances over 10 hours of 
Beltway Big Government Press Corps coverage. News that you can use to discredit the Beltway Big Government Press Corps. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at Dan Proft show.com on twitter at dan prof show and at dan prof and uh attorney general Barr, as we discussed yesterday making uh, an announcement before the national sheriff's association on monday that it's time to take prosecution of sanctuary jurisdictions to the next level uh, specifically in new jersey and king county washington state where uh, local and state laws are running afoul of federal immigration law. There is this thing called the Supremacy Clause. There is this responsibility the federal government has to enforce our immigration laws. It's about time. Let's hear from Attorney General Barr on the topic. And although local communities frequently feel the effects of unfettered illegal immigration and the effects of criminal aliens, the only authority in the country that is vested with the power and the responsibility of dealing with that problem is the federal government. No state can deal with it alone. And uh, as I mentioned yesterday, uh, importantly including it, included in his remarks was this notion that the Department of Justice will go after jurisdictions and or politicians who run afoul of federal immigration law, like that mayor of Oakland who wasn't gone after and she should have been. Again, there's no need to manufacture anything. But if you have a politician believe that he or she can break the law and intercede on behalf of criminals or alleged criminals against law enforcement, federal law enforcement, then that politician needs to be held to account. And I hope and I believe Attorney General Barr is serious about that. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Ken Cuccinelli, Principal Deputy Director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency and Acting Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. Ken, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you all. So uh, this seems to me like, I mean, I I know this is funding is not the purview of the Department of Justice, but just in terms of a multi-pronged approach to dealing with those jurisdictions and those politicians that want to interrupt the enforcement of federal immigration law, the purse strings is one thing. But uh, enforcing the rule of law, including on politicians, is a whole other matter. Yeah, and you you referenced some of uh, General Barr's comments yesterday. I'd also note that in Massachusetts, the U.S. attorney has brought charges against a state judge who was hustling some criminal illegals out the back door of the courthouse. I don't know whether you remember that. Yeah, one, that's but, right. Uh, I'd forgotten. You know, those, yeah, those are pending. That's a pending case. So um, you all are on the money in formulations of it, the aiding and abetting and so forth, that is entirely plausible. And we'll see what the Justice Department has in store here. But uh, I hope five more years of this kind of work. But uh, certainly in the Department of Homeland Security, we deal with the other end of it. We're the ones actually trying to do the enforcement. And, um, and we're doing it. But when you get localities that politicize law enforcement, and mind you, in our in American history, State, local, federal law enforcement have typically ignored politics. They work together. They keep each other safe. They've got each other's back. Um, 
And now they all have their own jurisdictions, but that's been a very cooperative arrangement throughout American history. There are a very limited number of times when politics has invaded law enforcement, and they have all been black marks on our history. And um, and this is another one. This is not. Uh, this is keeping people unsafe, both in the communities and law enforcement officers themselves. We had a couple of ICE officers who were assaulted while um, arresting a removable illegal uh, in New York City last week. They were both hospitalized. They both they got their man, but um, you know it was a, it was a violent tussle. Things like that that went on on the city streets. Uh, those sorts of handoffs should happen in city jails yeah. where everybody is safe. Um, and obviously, you know, locally, th- that's an issue. We have uh, this issue with King County. You saw they're suing uh, the Department of Justice is suing them because they don't want us to use their airport to deport people. Well, too bad. Then don't build an airport. Uh, I wanted to also, uh, you mentioned the King County case, not wanting the federal government to have access to their airport. Talk to us about also the case in New York State, because New York State comes up with a loony idea. It's sure to be uh, adopted in Illinois and California and and other states uh, post-haste. Their green light law and how uh, Homeland Security is responding to their green light law. What they call their green light law blocks basic DMV information from ICE and Customs Border Protection. And remember, New York's a border state. They get a lot of Canadian crossing back and forth. That's a good thing. It's a positive thing when it's uh, secure and safe for those involved in America. And it usually is. But to keep it safe, we have to know who's coming across our border. And the most basic way that's accomplished by U.S. law enforcement at every level is starting with those DMV bits of information. Is this license I'm holding real? Is the person it represents as being person X really person X? We need to access DMV databases to find that out. And you've probably heard in other discussions, in terms of raw numbers, the most dangerous thing that happens in law enforcement is pulling over a car. And it's not because every car is going to blow up on an officer. It's because it happens so many times a day that the odds start to stack up with the officers. And they need to know everything they can know when they approach that vehicle about what they're facing in that vehicle. Do they have a fugitive warrant? Are they literally walking up on a wanted criminal? Or is it just somebody who is breaking the speed limit? And by uh, New York barring access to that information, they've barred the opportunity to see the most basic building block of officer safety and law enforcement. And so we responded by telling New York that uh, among our many trusted traveler programs, pretty much all of them except TSA PreCheck so far, New Yorkers will not be able to enroll or renew their participation in those. And remember, they're a border state. They cross that border quite a bit, thousands of times a day. And by the end of 2020, about 250,000 New Yorkers who wanted to be in those trusted traveler programs will not be. And another 150 to 200,000 a year will not be renewed for the following four years until there are literally no New Yorkers left in those programs. And we keep these options on the table for other states as well. And it demanded a response because of exactly what I said. You're going to have other similarly and politically You're inclined states right. mimic them if you don't do something. That's right. I, I wanted to get your reaction to this uh, new way forward legislation that has been under discussed, introduced in the House by uh, illustrious Illinois Congressman Chuy Garcia, that would basically deal with illegal immigration. 
by just eliminating the illegal, that there's no such thing as illegal immigration anymore, yeah. and that's the way you figure it out. Um, what that would mean for law enforcement, what that would mean for national security? Border security is national security, and it certainly wipes it out. You know, I see stuff like that at a policy level, and I don't really think they believe it. I think that it's so extreme that no one could possibly, who's actually sworn an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution, which they all have, could actually believe that. I think that it's more political gamesmanship to wave in front of their extremely left-wing base and say, look what a great guy I am. In practical terms, if you implement something like that, you wipe out the ability of much of your federal law enforcement to protect America and Americans. And a lot of people who back policies like that will say, well, you know, we want to get the terrorists. Well, I got news for you. The terrorists, the human cargo, the drug cargo, they all come in the same pipe. And those pipes are set up by the same evil people. You can trace them back, not just to, but to the Mexican drug cartels that are organized cr criminal organizations that frankly operate like terrorists. And that's right on our border. If we want to just open the pipes to those folks, we're going to reap the whirlwind. And it will be even uglier than what we see now. Now, I, I'm uh, all for law enforcement and border security and um, uh, the work that the Homeland Security Department does. Yeah. However, um, it doesn't mean that it's all unqualified and without concerns. And I want to uh, get your reaction to uh, some of the concerns that have been leveled against the real ID that is uh, in the process of full implementa implementation by October. The concerns, uh, the privacy concerns people have about the sorts of uh, information that government may demand of American citizens on a go-forward basis and whether or not you know, this is really in the interests necessary to, to advance the interests of national security and is not uh, does not potentially increase the peril of government using this sort of information against American citizens to control them in material ways and move in the area of retina scans and DNA material and that sort of thing. Look, you're talking to a libertarian conservative. I appreciate those concerns very much. And as a state legislator, I was very particular about how we would do Real ID in Virginia. We are theoretically on the verge of that going into effect in October of this year. I will say that across the DHS Enterprise, because of the challenges with what I'll call information-based identities. So person X comes across the border and tells you their name is person X. It's awfully hard for us to verify that, particularly internationally. Um, and a lot of the information, as we were talking about earlier in our conversation, that we draw from is in those DMV databases. So we end up comparing against some of those to try to really exclude people from consideration. He is Ken Cuccinelli, Principal Deputy Director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency and Acting Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. Ken, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, it's good to be with you all. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're really interested in um, this uh, next gentleman. He wrote an extensive piece about uh, Ian Fleming, of course, the creator of the James Bond character, all the novels that have been made into movies and so forth. And I think this is a seminal British author. 
seminal British spy novelist uh, like Jean Le Carre. This uh, extensive piece was a bit surprising to me. I didn't realize how little uh, support that Ian Fleming had in the cognoscente community in English literary circles. This is what uh, Mr. Duns lays out in his piece. And I thought it'd be interesting. Let's do a little bit of a literature corner here. Broaden our reach. Just, uh, get out of the mundanities of politics. An early Valentine's gift for me. That's yeah. right. Exactly. <laughs> right. You you know, our well, listeners. Our listeners are, yeah. are well-read and they are interested in more than just uh you know, and and political tomes and yeah right and some of the cheap cultural stuff. Jeremy Duns is a British author of spy fiction in his own right and the history of espionage, and he has written this piece I mentioned at his blog Jeremy Duns D U N S dot com. Enemy action. He was the critic's darling until he wasn't talking about Ian Fleming. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. So what happened to Ian Fleming? He uh, began at the beginning, which is always a good place. Talk about how well he Casino Royale was received, but then by the early seventies, after Live and Let Die, it started to turn for him because I when I first saw the headline of your piece, I'm thinking, oh, there's a recasting of Ian Fleming in the, you know, the hashtag Me Too era, and now Bond is seen as some sort of, you know, male chauvinist, predator, toxic masculinity, example of toxic masculinity. But that's not really the case. Ian Fleming started falling out of favor with the critics 40 years ago. Yeah, I mean, that that whole thing about that he's a chauvinist and a sexist and a racist really stems from British literary reviewers back in 1954 with his second novel, Live and Let Die. And where he went wrong really was he became too successful. It was really that they weren't expecting someone. It was okay that he wrote a thriller. That was fine. That was fun. But when lots and lots of people started reading it, then it couldn't be literature anymore. So they went out of their way, really, to bring him down. The basis for the the critics of his age bringing him down? Well, the basis was supposedly kind of the things that you've mentioned, that he was a chauvinist, that it was um, morally dubious, that James Bond was a kind of cad, the most famous piece came out in 1958 was titled Sex, Snobbery and Sadism and those are the three things that have really been leveled at him since. But what I've tried to show in my essay is that these were really excuses because none of these critics had in fact, I mean I proved that the, the biggest critic of him had not read Ian Fleming's work. So they were really looking th- they were looking for reasons to bring him down but the reasons themselves were not valid. The critics, I mean some of the um, sort of leading intellects of the day, uh, people that yeah. um, like William F. Buckley had great admiration for Malcolm Muggler yeah, I mean, Muggeridge is sort of the villain of my piece, if you like. I mean, Muggeridge well, I was, I mean, he was kind of a contrarian. He changed, he changed a lot of his views over the years. But really, in this, it was a personal vendetta. Essentially, he, he knew Ian Fleming's wife, Anne, before she married Ian Fleming. And when he first met Ian Fleming, Ian Fleming rather casually told him that he had been in line, Muggeridge had been in line to be the editor of the Sunday Times, which was, you know, the most prestigious newspaper in Britain. But he hadn't got the job. And it looks to me like Muggeridge essentially held that against Fleming. And especially after he died, within four months of him dying, Muggeridge wrote a really vicious article in the American edition of Esquire that was extremely personally abusive about Fleming. And Ian Fleming's brother, Peter, who was a very mild-mannered man, took the very rare step of intervening and and saying, this is really not on. This is really quite outrageous. I I just say the the Muggeridge thing is interesting because uh, even though Behe and Buckley sparred, I mean, he wrote often about how much he enjoyed being uh, 
on the same panel as Mugridge, uh, going back and forth with Mugridge. He, he suggested he was a substantive guy, a thoughtful guy that was interesting to have discussions with. And the way you characterize him here is sort of below the bar that Buckley held him. Yeah. And I think Mugridge was a little bit erratic. And I think in this particular case, as I say, you know, his personal feelings about Fleming got away from him. But yeah, he, there's no doubt Mugridge was a very interesting, eloquent, articulate guy. And he was a fixture on British TV screens. He was one of the leading intellectuals in British public life at the time and became kind of a celebrity. I, I have an excerpt from his diary uh, in the essay in which he by chance meets the Beatles uh, when he's in Germany, um, when, they have ju- when they're just starting out and they recognize him. I mean, that's a very unusual thing that a, a public intellectual would be recognized by essentially a rock band as they were then. But so he was a famous intellectual. But in this particular case, this was really something that was personal with him. Thinking about Fleming and his Bond character, but then other great spy novelists I mentioned at the top, like uh, John Le Carre and, and his George Smiley character. The, the, those have been popularized because it seems like some of the criticism of Fleming, as you said at the outset, he became too popular. Well, Le Carre became very popular. He had his uh, books optioned into, t- into movies and television shows. Uh, how was he treated when he gained that sort of infamy? Yeah, that's an interesting point that that didn't really happen. Le Carre was seen more as being in the tradition of the intellectual, more in the tradition of Graham Greene. One of the ways that that happened was that he joined in. Um, I talk about this. He was interviewed by Muggeridge on the BBC, John Le Carre, and he joined in. They both kind of basically gave Ian Fleming a good kicking. So Le Carre was seen as the anti-Fleming. And although he was extremely popular, it was never to the same extent. I mean, we're just coming up now with the uh, next James Bond film, No Time to Die, is going to come out. That's the 25th film in a series. There has never been a a film series as successful as this. I think as one of the reviews I quote from the 60s, there had been 18 million readers of Ian Fleming's novels at that point or or something. It, It was a huge success that even eclipsed Le Carre. So he wasn't really regarded as an intellectual. But one of the things that I think people got wrong with Ian Fleming is that his novels are a lot of fun. And a lot of serious critics have not understood that you can be taken seriously, even if what you're doing is fun. It's something that people have understood with comedy that people understand that Charlie Chaplin was a genius. People understand that Alfred Hitchcock was a genius. But for some reason, if you write thrillers that are fun, there is a little bit of a difficulty in thinking that they can be taken seriously. And Le Carre was was more bleak, so it was taken more seriously. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Right. I mean, it's sort of the, the aristocratic attitude that if it appeals to uh, the, the masses, then it must not be high art, right? Yeah, it was complete, complete snobbery, essentially, which is ironic because that was what they accused Fleming of. Has the popularity, I mean, as you mentioned, too, that particularly uh, as it makes 25th iteration of uh, a Bond movie on the silver screen, has that popularity the world over over this extended period of time changed at all? Has it moved anybody in the uh, cognoscenti circle on, on Fleming and his import to, uh, to uh, British art and history? Not not really. I mean, there have been pockets, but essentially this really solidified very early on the, the view of Fleming. And it's a kind of chain reaction. So I kind of show how how one critic basically aped the critic before without bothering to read Fleming's work. They just kind of took on the same you know, notes. Well, that guy said it, so it must be true. And that kind of, you know, chain reaction has led up to today. There have been a few critics, Kingsley Amos notably. Uh, Fleming had a lot of admirers. Um, Christopher Isherwood was an admirer. Uh, Philip Larkin was an admirer. Lots of people, lots of intellectuals actually were admirers. But essentially, 
no, because James Bond has become more and more successful. And unfortunately, in, in Britain particularly, we have, you know, this tall poppy syndrome that, you know, the more successful you are, um, you know, the the less seriously you can be taken. We want we want to cut people down to size, unfortunately. Jeremy Dunn, yeah. British author of spy fiction and the history of espionage. Check out his piece, which I'll tweet out on uh, Ian Fleming. It's instructive beyond uh, beyond Ian Fleming, actually. Jeremy-Dunn's.com is also where you can find it. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, Friday night's debate, the New Hampshire primary victor. Bernie Sanders went on a riff about race in America saying this. Have a racist society from top to bottom impacting health care, housing, criminal justice, education, you name it. And clearly this is an issue that must be dealt with. But in terms of criminal justice, what we have got to do is understand the system is broken is racist. We invest in our young people in jobs and education, not more jails and incarceration. We end the war on drugs, which has disproportionately impacted African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans. We end private prisons and detention centers in America. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a standard issue riff, uh, the victimology narrative from uh, white liberals about uh, black Americans. You know, uh, the whole end the war on drugs, criminal justice reform, uh, spending more money through government to create opportunity, which is what Sanders was saying. And all all of them are saying and some Republicans, too. You know, in in the 70s in New York City, uh, the uh, rather draconian drug laws that were instituted by Nelson Rockefeller, that wasn't uh, a country club Republican deciding on his own to move in that direction. That was him responding to black Americans living in violent neighborhoods in New York who wanted their government to do something to protect them, to protect the, the the constituents of that government from predators in the neighborhood. It was in response to a call from black Americans for the same sort of public safety that is expected in wealthy white areas. And so do we have a bit of a replay of that where there's a disconnect between most of the Democrat socialists on the debate stage to this point? And will that uh, disconnect be made laid bare when Michael Bloomberg joins the stage. We don't know because he's been apologizing for the policies he he pursued as mayor of New York City when it came to reducing violent crime. But certainly there's the opportunity for it. And this dovetails nicely to a piece in Commentary magazine about the black vote and the black vote as conceived of by leftists like Bernie Sanders. Pleased to be joined by the author of the piece, Noah Rothman, associate editor of Commentary magazine, MSNBC and NBC News contributor, and author of the book Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, what about um, Bernie's uh, riff on, you know, everything that's wrong with uh, the plight of uh, some black Americans has to do with racism? Yeah, I mean, well, he wasn't alone on that debate stage. Just about everybody affirmed 
the essential progressive narrative about race in America, which is that to quote um, Bernie Sanders, it is quote racist, a racist society from top to bottom. Pete Buttigieg added that the systemic racism has penetrated every level of our system. Uh, Elizabeth Warren affirmed that we need quote race conscious laws, which is yeah, a real philosophical um, diversion from the traditional objective of civil rights advocates which is not race-conscious laws, but race-neutral laws, colorblind laws. Um, the progressive worldview has, and I demonstrate this in my book, has abandoned that notion as being one that is actually racially unenlightened, that to see color, fail to see color, that to evince color blindness is sort of an admission of a failure to comprehend how race penetrates every aspect of American society. It's unenlightened. Um, and this is manifest in their appeal to black Americans, which is essentially to adopt a progressive worldview and to pitch them on the narrative that the country is indelibly, perhaps irredeemably racist and therefore needs reparative laws, race conscious laws to balance the scales and to impose the kind of conditions that they imagine that uh, African-Americans suffer with today on white Americans, Hispanic Americans, those who have not endured those injustices. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, pretty counterproductive, but it's definitely, and, and as we wrote about in that piece, it might not necessarily capture the sentiment that prevails in a perhaps not majority, but healthy plurality, or at least minority, of uh, African-American Democratic primary voters. When we come back uh, with Noel Rothman, I want to pick up uh, our conversation with a, uh, a conversation I had with syndicated columnists, most notably in the Chicago Tribune for many years. Actually, he's celebrating his 50th year with the Chicago Tribune this year. Clarence Page, to your point. Clarence Page, no Trump supporter, uh, definitely left of center. Um, but uh, something that uh, he said that I think dovetails nicely with what you're saying, Noah. Back with more Noel Rothman on the Dan Prop Show right after Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Noel Rothman. He's the associate editor for Commentary Magazine, author of the book Unjust, Social Justice, and the Unmaking of America, talking about uh, the piece he penned for CommentaryMagazine.com about uh, the black vote as progressives imagine it. And, uh, you know, th- th- you're essentially suggesting that maybe there's a miscalculation going on with respect to some of these Democrat presidential candidates and the black vote, much as there was a miscalculation by Hillary Clinton in 2016 about uh, the black vote, at least as it pertained to turnout. And uh, I had this conversation with Clarence Page about, uh, you know, the state of race relations and and what he'd like to see. And again, Clarence Page, for those who don't know, he is definitely a liberal. He's not a Trump supporter in any way, shape or form. But he said, you know, I'm more interested in the great question that was asked by Martin Luther King uh, before he was assassinated. Where do we go from here after the 1964 Civil Rights Act? And uh, and his and then his ongoing pursuit of sort of economic opportunity for black Americans, and black families. 
he was asking the question, where do we go from here? And that's the question, Clarence Page. We're, I'm fine to talk about slavery. I'm fine to talk about Jim Crow. I'm ta- fine to talk about the legacy of the ravages of these terrible institutions in America and the mistakes that were made and the institutions that it should never have been. I'm fine to talk about that. But I want to spend more time on where do we go from here? I want to spend more time on saying, how do people become movers and shakers? How do I help people become movers and shakers in the black community? And so if you're not answering that question, it seems to me that you're missing an opportunity to appeal to black voters, whether you're a, a, a liberal or a, or, or a conservative. Yeah, I mean, you can make two points that uh, reinforce that. I think one is a little bit more philosophical and another one's just very prudential and um, about you know, day-to-day political concerns of African-American voters. So take for, let's go with Elizabeth Warren's um, race-conscious laws. Um, so probably the essential example of that is affirmative action. And in theory, uh, African-American voters are more supportive of uh, affirmative action than any other demographic. So the number is moving, in, according to Gallup, numbers moving in the wrong direction. African-Americans are slightly less supportive, and, and American whites are dramatically more supportive than they have been in the past. Um, but when you drill down into it on the issue, it's much more muddled. There was a Supreme Court decision in 2016 affirming the constitutionality of, a lot of colleges using admissions criteria based on race and, eth- race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. When you tested that among African-Americans, they were the most suspect of that ruling. Only 35% of black voters, according to Gallup, supported it. 50% disapproved of colleges using admissions criteria that were not based on merit alone. Uh, and that makes a, a little bit of sense when you consider the fact that African Americans are much more participatory in colleges now than, than whites. They're more likely to have some college, not a degree, not a four-year degree, but some college than whites. And allowing these criteria which now for allow uh, colleges to discriminate based on race and, race and ethnicity isn't necessarily going to cut in their direction. African Americans have experience with race-conscious laws, and it doesn't necessarily benefit them. Um, so establishing that sort of a precedent is something you would think they would be wary of. And the it, Bloomberg it, example is maybe yeah. – sorry, continue. No, go ahead. Go ahead with the Bloomberg example. The Bloomberg example is maybe even more prudential because – if you're a progressive, the entirety of Mike Bloomberg's legacy in New York City is stop and frisk, which is anathema, both to him now, he's apologized for it, and every progressive activist. And if you look at how African-American voters describe their priorities, according to Pew, um, racism is way up there. It's like 75 percent, which just doesn't correspond with any other demographic. But right below it, at 72 percent, is crime. That, too, doesn't correspond with any other demographic. We're in a period of remarkably low violent crime rates. But that's not necessarily so for particularly in urban areas um, where there are more African-American residents. So it makes sense that they would be much more conscious of that. And if you've listened to or seen any Bloomberg commercial, it is all about his record on crime, violent gun crime or reducing violent gun crime. So if you've only been exposed to the narrative of uh, the progressive narrative that Mike Bloomberg is too hard on crime, then you would say that, okay, you know, African-Americans wouldn't support this guy. But they are, according to a Quinnipiac poll that released uh, this week, Mike Bloomberg does better with black voters than any other candidate save Joe Biden, and it's kind of close. That doesn't make any sense if you're a progressive. But if you were to look at these things in a more neutral way, in a less ideological way, it makes perfect sense.
It reminds me of the story I started our conversation with about Nelson Rockefeller responding to black families demanding more stringent drug laws in New York City during his tenure because they wanted something done about violent crime. It wasn't that they're necessarily Nelson Rockefeller fans or certainly that there weren't Republicans, country club Republicans to boot, but it was because they wanted something done. And so sort of the same dynamic at play in part with the additional layer of uh, Bloomberg's very national public play on gun control. Yeah, absolutely. And so it gets down to much um, uh, a much more ideological level where progressives presume themselves to be the champions of a particular demographic, but have lost a lot of touch with that demographic. Well, and presu- uh, which pre- is evident in the polls. presumption, too. That's a key, because th- there's also something else presumptive. And you get to this in your piece in Commentary Magazine, which is uh, they treat uh, certain constituencies as one dimensional. You care about this issue and only this issue. And so that's all we're going to talk about. So and you use the comparison of it's all about immigration reform for Latinos. It's all about sort of reparative justice issues for for black Americans. And maybe that's not the case. And the Latino issue is great. As I I start out with that, with the anecdote of the fact that you still have progressives like people like Elizabeth Warren and her cohorts who refer to uh, Hispanic voters as Latinx, Latinx. I have no idea how to actually pronounce it, but you append an X onto Latin. And it's supposed to be more inclusive and demonstrate how in touch you are with this community. The polls have shown that almost nobody, it's like four, it's like three or four percent subscribe of, of the Hispanic community, subscribe to that definition. Which, And because, you know, there's a margin of error there, statistically it could be zero. So we're talking about this, a group that uses a term to describe a group that does not subscribe to that term, which suge- and, and they use it to suggest that they are the most representative of this particular demographic. It's an interesting dynamic and one that could be at least a, a marginally uh, applicable to African-American Democratic voters, too. He is Noah Rothman. He's the associate editor for Commentary Magazine, commentarymagazine.com, MSNBC and NBC News contributor and author of the book, Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. That's why they call me. Back to the Dan Prof show, and I just want to close the show picking up on uh, a point that Noel Rothman made in the, the interview we uh, just concluded with him, and it's uh, from a Joe Epstein op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about how Democrats uh, sort of self-radicalize, the self-reinforcing nature of leftism. In the example that Noel Rothman used, which I think perfectly illustrates this, as do a couple of examples Epstein provides, is what he's talking about. Is Elizabeth Warren referring to Latinos as Latinx when almost no Latinos refer to the Latino community as Latinx? So you represent them, but you use a term to describe them that very few, if any, use. Why is that? Joe Epstein notes, 
that George Orwell wrote about the nervousness of people on the left when confronted by those even further to the left. The nervousness stems from leftist fear that they will be taken for impure in their own leftism, that their thought and actions don't go far enough, that they are finally not really on the bus. In America during the 30s, communists mocked liberals for their weakness, and liberals worried about not measuring up, thus the term communist sympathizer or fellow traveler. Orwell's uh, observation remains in play. In the mid-60s, Stokely Carmichael and other young black militants pushed the American civil rights movement leftward and away from the goal of integration. Liberals, unable to face down this left-wing pull toward black power, knuckled under. A gloriously successful campaign for equal rights based on conscience and dignity devolved into an angry, incoherent movement based on guilt and victimhood. And that's when you had black center-right civil rights leaders split off from the civil rights movement. Those uh, friends of the show like Shelby Steele and Bob Woodson, for example. This is a real thing, and it's an explanation to give an understanding here. The same phenomena appeared in American universities, continued Epstein. In faculty meetings everywhere, small groups of mostly radical professors were able to get their, their way through political pressure. Liberals, generally in the minority, were worried, if not terrified, of seeming to be on the wrong side. When they didn't give in completely, they sought compromises that invariably favor the radicals. So you're just moving in their direction a little bit more slowly. Standards and intellectual authority in universities have given way to political correctness and identity politics. As we talked about earlier in the show with former New Hampshire state representative, uh, Michael Moffat. You know, this is sort of what happened in 72 with uh, the McGovern nomination and that uh, catastrophic electoral outcome for Democrats. And so that's the sort of the same thing that's happening here. And it's how the left continues to be pulled left. And frankly, some who are also nervous that are centrist or even center right, but that uh, are not particularly courageous and wilt in the face of name calling or accusations of unfairness, how culture continues to be pulled left. I may not agree with this craziness that uh, Elizabeth Warren is spewing, but the even worse than going along would be to be accused of you know not being on board with this this grand uh, existential transcendental fight. Right. That's how you get Elizabeth Warren referring to Latinos as Latinx when no Latinos do. It's an interesting way to properly understand why things get away from people who are otherwise commonsensical, even with leaners on the left and leaners on the right. This is how. This is why. Epstein provides additional historical context to the example that uh, Noah Rothman gave us. Thank you so much for joining us on this edition of The Dan Prof Show. Remember, follow us at danprofshow.com, on Twitter, at danprofshow, or at danproft. We'll see you tomorrow night. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.